Today's guest on the podcast is Janet Rich Elsbeck. She's the author of the book Extra Helping, which is a cookbook, but it's different than any other cookbook I've ever, ever known. And my daughter, who's 11, absolutely loved it. (laughs) She took it to school and read it and read it and loved it. So it's about how food plays a role in our community from birth to death and how to prepare foods and use food as as a tool for times when when things are tough, um, not in a binge eating sort of way, but in a way to gather around and to help people who are going through difficult times. We talk about grief and life and food. So it was a great episode and wonderful to get to know Janet. So I hope you all enjoyed this episode. Hi, and welcome to the Same 24 Hours podcast. I'm Meredith Atwood, author of the book, The Year of No Nonsense. I'm a former attorney turned writer, speaker, and Ironman triathlete. Although right now, all I really like to do is lift weights. We all have the same 24 hours, but it's what we do in those hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. It's my goal to crack the code on a life of less nonsense so we can all make the most of our 24 hours. So let's get started. Today's guest is Janet Rich Ellsbeck. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Meredith. Thank you for coming on and talking about your new book, Extra Helping. It's such a beautiful book. Um, How did you decide that food was so important? (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, thank you. Um, Thank you for having me. And um, I think food is very important, but how... (laughs) I'm laughing at the question because I don't remember ever deciding that food was important. (laughs) I feel like that was the message from my family of origin, really, from the beginning, that the table was really the center of family and friendship and how we look after each other and travel and just about everything we did. Um, It felt like food and the table was really at the middle of that. So it really didn't feel like a conscious choice. Well, how was, how was your childhood? You said it was always, um, the table was important. So you obviously had good family meals and. We did. Um, how was your childhood is a big question. (laughs) So I'm just going to go with the table aspect of that. Um, so I have two sisters, um, one of three sisters and, um, my mom was always a really both rooted in, um, my family's Jewish. So rooted in those traditions and then just a really adventurous cook. She was always conquering some new skill or exploring a different cuisine or, or something like that. And we were all just engaged in that. And my sisters each and then together had a little catering sort of on the side business when they were in high school that I took over when they left and for college. And um, I was, you know, I worked for them um, when I was younger and had a job in a bakery near you know, when I was in high school. Um, but food wasn't really the center of my kind of professional focus. I was trained as a teacher and uh, worked as a, a teacher and a writer, um, worked in the arts and worked mostly in nonprofit. And it was really when I started to find a way to write in a more focused way that food came into the kind of the center of fo- the focus field. Because um, <laughs> back in 2012, when everybody didn't have a blog. Um, <laughs> right. I, and that's so funny you say that because people ask me all the time, like, 
how do I, you know, get, get a blog started and, and get a book deal out of it? I'm like, well, you have to start blogging in 2008. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was late then because I didn't start till 2012, but I, I have a really good friend, um, Susie Baum, who has just um, always been working in her professional life to amplify the voices of women, especially moms. Um, and she invited me to be part of a writer's event that she was organizing. And I realized I kind of needed to have something out in the world that said I was a writer. I'd written a children's book when I was in graduate school, but I hadn't published any writing since then. And so I, she said, we'll start a blog. That's what everybody's doing. And, mm -hmm. you know, again, four years later than, <laughs> than everybody. Um, and I said, well, God, I don't know what I would write about. And another friend said, well, we all want to know what you guys are having for dinner or what's in the lunchbox for your kids. So just write about that. And it made such sense to me because I thought about food all the time. And it was really something, it was the only thing I could think of that I'd have something to say about, you know, on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. So that was an easy place um, for me to start. And what was your uh, blog? It, it still exists. It's called A Raisin and a Porpoise, which is a funky name that comes from a Alice in Wonderland, a Lewis Carroll quote. Um, and that's where I started. I just started talking about what my, was in my kids' lunchboxes and then dinner in general. And, and that kind of evolved um, into a book. Uh, again, with all, all of this happens with, you know, good women friends behind you, reminding you what you need to be doing. Right, um, right. So that Susie had me start the blog and then um, another friend, Laura McNeil, who's a wonderful writer, said it's it's really time that this became a book. And, and so what is this book about? So my friend Alana Chernello, who's a wonderful, generous home cook, who's um, written a, a number of really beautiful cookbooks, said she gave me the idea of talking to people about how to show up for each other with food. Um, because I had, you know, at that point I had probably five years worth of writing about food collected, but I was looking for the thread that would kind of become a book. And she said, that's, this is the idea. And that was a huge gift. And then the idea to organize it around. So it's, the book is organized around um, various life events, joyful and not so joyful illness, loss, birth, you know, birthdays. How, how do we show up for each other and how do we, create community or reinforce the web of community by feeding each other. Because just as it was the easiest thing for me to have something to say about every day, there's just a, a universal quality to food, no matter what you've been through, if you've gotten through it, whether it's, you know, the loss of a parent or Wednesday, right. you've eaten something that's, it, it unites us um, in communities. It unites us it, it, basically wherever you, you draw the line to define your community across the world because I've had that early exposure with my family to eating across borders and, you know, exploring the world that way, um, both when we were traveling and also just at home, you know, cooking the foods of other countries, um, it was natural for me to start thinking about, well, sure, Jewish penicillin is chicken soup, but how does chicken soup show up in other places or when I started looking at, for some reason, rice pudding was the most <laughs> illuminating because <laughs> it just the way that it just very, it's such a gentle food and the way that it kind of gently morphs as it goes around the globe, but it's just such a universal thing. This idea, um, I find that really comforting. Um, and it's, it's especially at this moment in history, it's so, uh, it's such a gift to have ways to think in common with other mothers, with other children, with other <laughs> eaters around the world that we all have these, um, funny threads of food that 
um, that unite us. Right. And I love the title of the book, Extra Helping. I mean, that has so many meanings. Um, How did you come up with the title? I was in a yoga class because I'd been (laughs) really struggling um, to come up with a title. The working title of the book wasn't really appealing to the publisher. So um, we'd been going back and forth and they'd come back at me with something. And I was like, oh, no, that's not that's not it. And I remember, you know, it's that, that thing where if you stop thinking about it for long enough, the idea will come. I had lists all over the place. I had my son, who's very good with words, and my daughters were also sort of thinking about it. And then I was just in the yoga class, and I was like, oh, my God, extra helping. <laughs> now, Boom. what about the subtitle? Because, like, the subtitle, Recipe for Caring, can sorry, Recipes for Caring. <laughs> it's a mouthful. <laughs> I know. I hate when people mess up my subtitle, and now I just did it with you. So I'm sorry. Let me start over. Recipes for Caring, Connecting, and Building Community One Dish at a Time. That's a very good subtitle. Um we had like friendly active back and forth around the title and then the subtitle they were they had a lot of put a lot of guidance into that yeah. because they really wanted it to make it clear yeah um and it believe it or not given how wordy it is it was much longer <laughs> when we started so it was, <laughs> there was a lot of trimming and peeling to get it to that point but it but really it does get you, it i mean fresh. it tells you what the book's about and that's important yeah. because extra helping can be taken two ways <laughs> yeah yeah. And it's that, you know, it's sort of that same 24 hours idea right. of no matter where you go, there's just a, a level of human experience that's, um, that's common. The, the recipes, uh, they work. I know that <laughs> put a lot of time into that, but really the book is more, um, intended or like it's the offering is more just to give people a place to start to think about this. I mean, I, like I said, I've been thinking about it since before I could consciously know that I was thinking, but, um, a lot of people, I think, especially around grief um, and illness, get kind of p- paralyzed. Like, I don't know what they want. I don't right. I don't know what they, maybe they're, one of them's paleo, maybe, I don't know. Like, plus then, then sort of our cultural paralysis around uh, difficult things like grief and illness. Um, so people just don't know what to do. And I kind of wanted to just offer, here's a, I'm obviously geeked out on like Peruvian chicken soup, but what, just a place to think, start thinking about it. And then when you, all these things are so unique to the situation that you're showing up for. So my, the recipes I'm offering, you may not be the right um, offering, but there at least be a starting place like, oh, well, this person thinks about it this way, but actually in this case, they kind of want this. And then, then you're kind of in it and you don't have to right. you know, worry about Well, it's really interesting you say, you know, people don't know what to do in a tough situation like a a death. Um, So what have you learned around that? Because I was listening to an audio book that kind of broached that subject. The woman was dying of cancer and she said, no one has the right thing to say when I tell them I'm dying. They just say the wrong things. And Mm -hmm. so I, I, I always pay special attention when I hear someone say that, you know, that people are saying the wrong things. But I find that there's often very little guidance on what to do. And and that's what I love about this book is it's kind of a solution. So maybe you could share with the listeners um, what some things you have learned around maybe grief. Let's take that one. Oh, yeah, that's been a pretty steep learning curve. I'd say that the steepest learning curve for me as a person who um, has spent a, a lot, a good portion of my life offering help um, was learning how to receive it. Because you would kind of think that those things would be the same, you know, two sides of the same coin in a way, but they really aren't. It's, it's much harder to receive than it is, I find, to to give it out. Um, Why do you think that is? I know, I know exactly what you mean. Um, yeah. Even the simplest 
receiving feels well, hard. More and, more and more, I'm finding that, like, you know, especially you and I are talking on the first day of the new year. So, you know, all these, what's your word for the year? And my word for the year is pretty much the same <laughs> always, which is curiosity. Like, the, the places where we assume we know are usually the places where we need to do the most investigation and learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that's really like, I, I would have thought that I would be great at having people show up for me because I think about it all the time and I do it all the time. Right. Um, and that was really the place where I need to stop. And go, oh, nope, <laughs> not, not so good. And I think curiosity is, I mean, it just saves you. It, it saves you in all those situations where you're kind of struggling and paralyzed, um, is that feeling like I should know. And I don't want to do the wrong thing. And I should know what the thing is. But like you said, we don't really give people much guidance in this culture. Like other cultures have whole you know, rituals and, and rituals, ceremonies yeah. and customs built up around it. And we just try not to talk about it. So I know that I had this experience myself and certainly was a ringside seat for other people where dealing with a chronic illness or a terminal illness or grief and loss, it's like you've been sucked out of regular society and you're in this parallel universe where it's like one way glass, like you can't, and it's just such a strangely isolating thing when it's, it should be the opposite. That should be the time that we're most embracing each other and most like trying to bring each other into the fold. And I I really find that if you, if you come at it with that, um, you know, what do you guys need versus like, I know what they need, you know, they need a lasagna. Like, Right. You'll, you'll find that the energy of the situation is so much more pliable and, um, you know, I don't know, just po- there's so much more possibility when you come at it with a question than with either the assumption that you know what somebody needs or um, the feeling like I should know. And I don't, God forbid, I ask because then they'll know I don't know. And, you know, again and again, I heard and maybe you've had this experience, too, like the people who show up and say, I don't know what to say, but I'm here. Mm-hmm. is so much more sustaining and there's so much again so much more possibility in that than the people who are waiting until they know just what to say or do to even manifest because right. they're just gone and right. you just feel like where did that person go and you um, hear sometimes in in grief circles that people that just show up just to sit with someone mm-hmm. um is very healing and where i find the difficulty is is long distance it, that's where i struggle um i feel like if something happens in my community or my neighborhood i can deal with that cuz i don't mind just sitting with someone i don't mind asking mm-hmm. what they need but for someone that's far away that's where i really struggle to help yeah it's it's you know the, a lot of the what happens online maybe is more isolating than unifying, but there, there are tools and things that have come out of our uh, electrified culture that um, make some of those things a little bit easier. You can always ship soup, right? Yeah. (laughs) You can always ship soup or have it delivered or whatever. But I, one of my favorite stories about that is my college roommate and I live on opposite sides of the country now. And she suffered a terrible loss um, a few years ago. And one of my, sort of toolkit questions is what's the thing that you're struggling to ask someone for? Um, and in her case, she wanted to bake with her son and she'd always been meaning to, and always wanted a set of those scoops that, you, you know, the graduated scoops for scooping yeah. out cookie dough. And she didn't have them. And, you know, in the midst of like deep grief, like could, just couldn't solve for X. And I was like, Oh my God, that is so easy for me to like, it was such a gift. And that's the thing. Like when you're offered a way to help, 
going back to that idea of the learning curve of, of receiving help, it's so important to remember that you're giving that other person a gift if you're letting them know how to show up in a way that's welcome and useful and valuable to you. I felt great. I, you know, I called whatever cook's catalog, boom, she had, <laughs> you know, a set of cookie scoops on her doorstep, you know, in two days. And that kind of thing, the give and take of it, like the round robin of it, that's what we forget about when we're struggling to accept it, is that you're somehow burdening the other person or, you know, draining them in some way. And, in, and it's really just the opposite. And I have such a keen sense now. We've had some really, really hard family experiences in the last decade, really, um, to just keep reminding myself, like, I remember what it feels like, like to the cookie scoop errand. I was like, man, I'm on it, you know? Right, right. And, and that was such a good feeling. And why would you limit somebody you love from having that kind of experience where they can just give you just what you need, not like guess it, excuse me, what that might be, <clears throat> or do, for God forbid, do something wrong, but just to give them the actual information. And then it's great. It's, it's, and I mean, the way life works, we, I'm sure, you know, it goes around and around, you know, some right. days you're ordering the cookie scoop and some days you're asking for the cookie scoop and there's, I've, I certainly had the experience of someone saying to me, oh, I never knew anyone who died. Um, and I thought, well, that's. Hold on tight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, bra brace yourself because right. that's, you're probably not going to get out of here with, with that. Tag well, on. if you do, you're, you're the last one. I mean, you'll be yeah. the one to go. <laughs> right. So. Um, so again, yeah, just like curiosity and that just the remembering that it's such a universal experience, all of right. these things. So how long did the book take you from start to finish? I mean, I feel like it's so different than the books I write because it's recipes, it's illustrations. I mean, there's this book is beautiful, you guys, by the way. Oh, um, thank you. It's beautiful. Um, it's an amazing read. It's so much more than than I feel like we're giving it credit for here. So <laughs> I want to like, I mean, it's it, even down to the cover, the way it feels. I love the way the cover feels. It's that. Oh, I like that too. Nobody's mentioned that before. But yes, like, that like that's too. so yeah. important for me for a book. And so it's got that like so matte matte cover with, but it's also soft. I don't know. Anyway, all the book well, nerds are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We know. <laughs> <laughs> when we were um, putting it together, the. Um, the illust you know, we were sort of reviewing kinds of illustration possibilities and um, a couple of friends said, oh, you can't do a cookbook without photographs because like, that's the thing, you know, that's what really gets people going. And I, I ended up really embracing the idea that it didn't have photographs because I find, yes, they can definitely be inspiring, but um, I didn't want there to be anything limiting about it. Like mine isn't going to come out looking like yours, you right. know, might Pinterest stop somebody. Culture. Yeah, ex exactly. <laughs> um, so we were looking around at illustrators and when they suggested Anna, um, the publisher suggested Anna Bronis, who did the paper cuts. I mentioned I wrote a children's book when I was in graduate school for teaching and I paper cut the illustrations, black paper. Um, white. And so when I saw her work, I was like, oh, my gosh, it just felt had this really beautiful full cir circle experience. Sorry, there's a dog that just escaped control. Hang on a second. <laughs> that would be real life for you. So it just had this really neat full circle feeling that um, the paper cut illustrations and her work is so wonderful. And I now have the cover illustration hanging in my house, which is really nice. But yeah. it just had a really comfortable feel to it. And I was really happy about it. And how so you had a lot of it. these recipes, I'm sure, um, from all the years of blogging and, and just yeah. work. But I mean, from the start to finish, from from the contract when you've got the 
go ahead to write the book to the finish? Like how long of a project was this book? It was about a year and a half. Oh, wow. That's impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, there was a lot of content that existed that needed to be refined. But then there was a lot of, you know, once I started thinking about it, really the challenge was winnowing the list down because, (laughs) you know, there was a real temptation to put everything in there. Um, Right. But yeah, (laughs) so there was a lot of new stuff created for the book. And then there just had to be a lot of editing down because it would have been a seven volume set. Right, right. It would have been like Julia Child's original. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that would be nice. Yeah. yeah. Um. So let's talk about um, birth, a new baby, because I saw an article recently that said, you know, give the new mom some time. And it was like, don't go to the hospital, all this stuff. And um, so I, I think about new moms and, and what I wanted when I had a newborn, which was someone to come actually take the baby (laughs) and let Mm -hmm. me go sleep. Like, that's what I desperately wanted. So what have you found around food and a new baby and and that transition? Well, that's a really key situation in which um, you have to remind yourself that the nutritive value of your opinion is very low. (laughs) (laughs) And that finding out what is actually wanted, like some moms are like, if you would hold this baby so I could take a shower, you know, I would build a monument in your honor. And some people are like, it's actually the laundry, but I'm too embarrassed to say that because I don't want to put the baby down right. for whatever reason. Um, and just accepting that um, as universal an experience as birth and postpartum are, they take such personal, unique form for each person. Um, and it's such a tempting place, I think, because moms tend to be isolated from each other maybe a little bit. Um, it's a really tempting place to be like, oh my God, this is what happened to me. That must be what's happening for you. Um, but that's, that can be so limiting um, in terms of connection. And, you know, if someone's experience isn't mirroring yours, you wouldn't want to shut down the possibility that they could talk to you about it and ask questions about it and um, kind of be welcomed into community. And it was really striking for my family when we had our first, and I think this is true for a lot of people, we didn't know a lot of other people who had children. And we didn't have a kid in school. And, you know, we were, it was sort of a, it was all uncharted territory versus when we had our second and our third, we were in a community of young families. And so we were welcomed and, you know, fed in a totally different way than we were. It was very isolated. I remember feeling very isolated with my firstborn. Yeah. Um, so, you know, genuine curiosity around that, like, what do you need? How, do, what, what would be helpful to you? Um, that kind of thing versus I know exactly what, you know, this happened to my, there's so much like, this happened to my sister-in-law and then they had to, you know, like, <laughs> right. really like keeping a real tight clamp on that until somebody asks you for information or opinion or help. So the know. number one recipe for community and caring is asking for the, what the people need. Yeah. Which may take a little, um, you know, you might need to pump a little air in the tires because we don't, we aren't good at it. And again, the proliferation of online tools is really helpful because it's much easier if you're doing a food a meal train or a food chain or whatever language you use to sit there and type in, uh, you know, my husband's allergic to shrimp. We have one kid with a, uh, you know, just can't stand sauce. And then it is to communicate that face to face. I really, I like that feature of online stuff more than the human to human interaction. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's really useful, um, to, to just say like, and and the other thing about those tools is they let you see like, Oh, this was going to be their seventh, you know, casserole of the week because people are supposed to 
put in, you know, what, what they're bringing. So you can look at it and go, Oh, you know, I was going to make lentil soup, but this looks like they've been drowning in lentil soup. Um, but really just asking people and allowing them, giving them permission to just state an appetite. I find it, first of all, it's illuminating and it tells you what to do, which is great. But it also, I mean, that was the most exciting or interesting, intriguing part to me about researching the book was talking to people about those kinds of things. Like, you know, their dying father wanted this versus what the doctors were saying they could have. And that idea of appetite, it's just endlessly interesting to me, like what people are hungry for and, you know, how that translates around the world, like belief systems about, um, I traveled with my, one of my children's, uh, Spanish classes went to Cuba a few years ago. A couple of kids got, you know, traveler's tummy and I asked for bananas and they looked at me like I was crazy. Because hmm. they like, that's the last thing that we would give them. Um, so that kind of stuff is just endlessly interesting to me. But appetite is so compelling. Like uh, when my sister was dying, what she was hungry for, you know, against what she was technically allowed to have, um, solving for that. X was really, really drove a lot of my energy um, to try and figure out how to satisfy someone because it's such a primal thing. You know, we come out hungry. We come out rooting for um, mother's milk. So it, it's like it's, it's such a central driving force and it gets manipulated in these weird ways by medicine and culture and what we're trained to think is proper and all that kind of thing. And if you can honor that, it's, it's so satisfying. It's so satisfying for the person you're feeding and it's so satisfying for you to know like, ah, nailed it. That was what they wanted, you know, <laughs> right. Got the thing. So again, just a curiosity and like what it, it's, the cookie scoops are really the same thing. It's, it's saying, what are, what do you need that you're struggling to articulate? And sometimes that remove that you're talking about the distance factor is actually helpful. Like, it would have been hard for her to say to somebody right there who was looking at like everything she had to face after the loss of her husband to be like cookie scoops. Really? You know, yeah. but I wasn't there. So she could say anything to me and, and I would just do it and she could get what she needed, which is great. Um, well, what do you so, do when someone says they don't need anything? Do you honor that? Um, yeah, I think you do. I, you know, I, 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 I would, or do you force a, a casserole? <laughs> I, I definitely wouldn't do that because, I mean, have, have you have you had a fork casserole forced on you? It's uh, not. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you'd have to. And again, it's so individual situation to situation. But um, I, I also I talk to a lot of people about the language around, especially around grief and loss. Like if there's anything I can do or I'm so sorry for your loss or whatever. And a friend of mine and I had this really interesting back and forth because I I have a real affinity for the phrase, I'm sorry for your loss, because it doesn't presume that you know what that loss feels like. Right. You know, it's like, I'm sorry for your lo your loss, whatever form it's taking. Some people have very complicated relationships with whoever it is that's gone. Um, so, you know, that's it, it, that can be very individual. And she, she likes a phrase that I absolutely can't stand, which is, let me know if there's anything I can do. Because when you're strapped by some situation... It's so hard to mm -hmm. think of a, a, a thing and then to articulate it and then to match it to somebody who said that they would help you. So I, 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 I do drop it, but I don't disappear. Like I circle back. Yeah. Like, yeah. How about now? And maybe or, that's the key. Yeah, yeah. And there's a whole little section in the book about um, if you're really specific with what you're offering, you t it, people tend to respond um, 
more positively, like I'm at the hardware store or I'm driving past your house this afternoon. Can I drop anything off, pick anything up? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, because it's, it's the amorphous sort of nonspecific. If there's anything I can do, like, oh my God, there's so many things to do. Like how would I pick one? Right. So um, I think it's interesting. You, you say that I'm sorry for your life. The way you explained it makes it feel better. I'm sorry for your loss. I have a hard time with that phrase when mm-hmm. I see it. I think because I live in the online world so much that when someone posts something online, there's just like pages of I'm sorry for your loss. Yeah. And it almost feels dismissive in that context to me. But I don't know the alternative, you know, and right. let me know if there's anything I can do feels I think it's just it always just feels so hard Um that, you know, you don't know what to say, but I feel like I'm sorry for your loss. The way you explain it, the way you explained it is it makes so much more sense. Um, but it's it's hard to read, you know, 150 comments that say that. And I always struggle to try and come up with something differently. <laughs> and I don't know if I'm successful, you know. Um, yeah, I think I mean, I think that yeah, it's so interesting how which things people respond to, and which they don't. Um, and it's all, of course, in how you say it and who's saying it. But um, the, the idea like grief, I've had a real crash course in the last couple of years there and illness too, I think. And mm-hmm. for, like any of these events, they're not static things, you know, right. they morph and change on an hourly, daily, weekly, monthly basis. And they go, the, the arc is not, you know, the steady upward climb. It has, I mean, especially having just gone through the holidays, it's, it's so messy and it's so one step forward and three, what feels like 300 steps back. And, um, so the bumblebee approach where you just keep like circling back and saying, what about now? Because the day that they say, no, thank you, please. Like we have so much food. Like you never want it to the help to tip over into something else that has to be managed and dealt with, but that's going to change. Because, again, because we don't tend to deal with it well or give people um, a toolkit for how to deal with it, um, within a couple of weeks, especially of a loss, the, most of the circle has gone back to their lives and left the person to sort of be done, you know, be finished with grieving or um, be better from pneumonia or whatever thing that they had. And it's later on when the crowd thins out that your help could really be helpful. Right. Um, so I would, I tend to just keep circling back. Like, how about now? Yeah. What about now? And then, and then, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and what about, and I have just amazing friends and, um, who are, you know, kind of aware that this is an ongoing process. So they check in and have really schooled me in the art of just keep checking in. Because it's probably harder for the person who's gone through the thing um, to bring it up than it is than there is any risk that you're quote unquote reminding them of something right. that they've haha forgotten about. You right, know, it's always right. present for them, so sure. um, it's more of a gift down the line. So you know, by all means, reach out in the immediate aftermath of something. But I really feel like it's later on that it's the most valuable. Well, Janet, you mentioned that curiosity is something that's very important to you, but this podcast is called The Same 24 Hours, and I like to ask my guest what is something that they do in their 24 hours that contributes to their greatest health, happiness, and success. And here we are in a new year and a new decade, Mm -hmm. and um, what is something that you found is, is part of 
maybe a daily routine and a daily um, habit that really makes your life kind of tick? Well, again, I find food is so grounding, like just mm-hmm. that to try and have an experience every day where I, I'm really aware, even if it's a peanut butter sandwich, I mean, it doesn't have to be something fancy, but it's such a, it has such powerful um, webs of connection around it that if I'm having a really terrible day, just to sit there with, put the milk in my tea and think about where the milk came from, you know, and all the, the concentric circles of human animal earthbound mojo that's in that milk being available to me. Like something that simple is a really powerful practice for me to just kind of root myself in that. Or, you know, I'm standing there cutting up something for a sort of nondescript dinner, but then I, I can kind of stop and look and see like how onions are gorgeous. Like, look at the onion. It's beautiful. (laughs) You know, just to root myself in those kinds of things. um, I find this really steadying and Well, that is great. That is great, Janet. Thank you so much, everyone. Check out her book, Extra Helping. It really is a beautiful book. And um, congratulations, Janet. It's lovely. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for having me and also just for amplifying the voices that you amplify and everything that you're doing, too. Thank you, Janet. Happy New Year. And to you. Thank you for joining me on this episode of The Same 24 Hours. Remember to rate, review, and share this podcast. It really matters. I appreciate it. See you next time.